welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 45 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a bi-weekly show all about adventures in our board gaming hobby. My name's Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And today's episode is all games for the whole show. No academy, no discussion, just games. We've got recent adventures, we've got Moonrakers for the 8-bit breakdown, the Time Warp, Adventures on the Horizon, and a return to Solo Land. Scott, we got it all today. Oh yes, we just decided we'd spin the wheel and see what was going to come up for the day for what we're going to talk about, and it just came up with all. Well, adventurers, whether you're listening in the car at work or spelunking a dimly lit cavern, thank you for having us today. If I can go on a little side quest here for a second. Oh, boy. Sometimes whenever you're late at night and you get lost in YouTube, whenever you said spelunking in a dimly lit cavern, mm-hmm. I found this one channel that has this father and son that goes spelunking in dimly lit caverns. Okay. There is not a chance in anything I would crawl in some of these <laughs> holes these guys do. That is absolute insanity. Yeah. I mean, hey, if mm-hmm. it's your thing, it's all good, but... Wow, I had no idea I was so claustrophobic just from watching a YouTube video. Gets you tense just watching the video, huh? Whew, yes it does. Scott, Doomlings arrived. I got my Kickstarter in. That is fantastic. I'm still waiting for mine. I didn't go all gold and everything, so <laughs> it's great that you got that. And it's such a fun feeling knowing that we talked to them so early on in the process of this, and now it's coming to fulfillment. And it's on our side, I think it just feels really good. Like we weren't a part of it, but in a way we were a yeah, part of it. Like so it's really exciting. See it come full circle. Oh, I got the gold box. It's got like the, the, what do you call it? Like rigid, bumpy etching on the box. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know I what I'm saw talking about. you had it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, play it looks mat, like the foil cards. I got like six foils in there. It's like a miniature Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Speaking of Kickstarters, I see one of your favorites is on Kickstarter. That it is. I saw that season two of Final Girl came out. And uh, yeah, the acquisition disorder really jumped there and I would click right away. It's really exciting. I'm seeing them spread out. They've got the non-IP infringing Alien, the non-IP infringing The Thing, Whenever you play season one, you look at, I wonder how they would do this movie or this movie. And it's coming to fruition. Really super excited to see how this one comes out. Did you see Marvel Zombicide is on Kickstarter? Already over two million bucks raised. Scott, they won $130 on the base game. Well, I can understand that. There is a lot of plastic in there. There are a lot of people that love this game, play this game all the time. There are zombicide junkies out there. It's an excellent but, game system. I love it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not bashing it at all, but I have the Black Plague version. Mm-hmm. It's a great time. I love it. Played the original version. It's a good time. I love it. But it just seems that... It's the same kind of thing. I mean, I would love it if there was some way that they would put in there, and I'm sure that someone's probably done this, where Marvel zombies can invade the Black Plague or 
the uh, oh, outer yeah, space sure one can invade the Wild West. They even did crossover uh, with um, oh, what's their massive darkness. So a lot of those characters, like their cards, you could put them on the little tray and incorporate them into your Zombicide game. So I, yes, I'm willing yes. to bet that they absolutely did like cross compatibility between the games. Yeah, and one of my things too is that I kind of went in on the Marvel Crisis Protocol, so. <laughs> That kind of scratched my Marvel Comics miniatures mm -hmm. uh, liking there. I'm excited for people to get this, but for me, it just did not come out screaming, you've got to back this, you've got to back this. <laughs> well, I saw they're all in is $410. You factor in add-ons after the fact, plus the shipping. There's going to be people into this thing for 700 bucks. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean... I got to say, that huge Galactus model is one impressive piece of plastic. I can keep it. <laughs> Scott, we had a meetup this past week at Ruckus Cafe. And I got to say, Daryl, the, the owner, really great guy, really receptive to the group. Food was excellent. The coffee's good. I bought a bag to take home and I've been drinking it all week. Uh, it was just <laughs> phenomenal. I'm telling you what, I, I played No Thanks like I always do, but I had the chance to get in The Thing, Breakneck Derby, and that morning, my box of Magical Friends uh, Adventures. You'll recall this when mm -hmm. we did a side quest back in like September, August, somewhere, you know, half a year ago anyway. And uh, I was in touch with Clemens and I was like, hey, if we can get a copy of this, I'll, I'd love to show it at meetups. It showed up that morning. Saturday wow. morning it showed up and I was like, well, <laughs> I got to brush up on the rules because we are playing this and we did. And of course, I got in some No Thanks. Oh, but of course, yes. Yeah, it was one of those things where you typically think of coffee shops and you're thinking, eh, it's going to be kind of tight in here. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I tell you what, they did so much to accommodate us and allow us to play games and have a lot of laughs. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that they really enjoyed having all that life in there and all that excitement going on in there. I drank far too much coffee that day. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was a great time. I mean, I got a chance to get in a game of Summit, a game of a new one, Arch Rivals. Mm -hmm. And I know I had to look at it again. It wasn't Arch Rivals, but Arch Rivals. I thought you I were saying that with things. a silly accent. It's actually Arch Rivals. Yes. And I got in a game of Crokinole. With I was going to say, I saw you playing Crokinole up there. I got a chance to play some Crokinole and... Normally, you play it one way, but we had Steven from Browncastle Games come in, bring in a Crokinole board. He brought in these decks of cards of different rules, hmm. and this made it a lot of fun because there were all these little different rules each and every round that we played where the scoring would be different. Normally, it's 5, 10, 20 going inside. Yeah. Well, this way it's going to be five in the center, 10 coming out, 20 on the outside. Oh. So you had to be very careful where you shot things. Or if you shot something and you hit somebody, well, you could stack yours on top of someone else's disc mm -hmm. and then you'll get five extra points for that. And I Each assume then that another player can like push their disc into those ones, thus knocking one off. Exactly. Yes. So, and if you did it the right way, you could have three or four stacked up like that. So it really made that game so much more exciting. Lots of laughs going on with that. We had four people around the table doing that. It was a great, great time. And I really look forward to that coming out. And I don't know. I think I might have to see a crokinole table uh, being <laughs> added to my birthday list coming up in July. 
Well, adventurers, check out Brown Castle Games for, uh, I think Stephen does crokinole boards and he does supplies. He's got some some alterations on the rules for how to play. I think he told me he's got a card game that they're working on to have out in a few months. But uh, Brown Castle Games, that's where you can get everything you need, crokinole. That's it. Our next meetup, March 12th, we're going to be at Fabricators Forge in Coriopolis. Looking forward to that. Scott, this shop, I was talking with the owner. He said it's predominantly miniatures players. They're, they want us there because they're trying to get their board gaming uh, a little bit more vibrant. He said so far it's all Warhammer. It's uh, Battletech. It's it's a bunch of minis gamers. And I was like, well, <laughs> Scott might, uh, uh, excuse Scott me, might be excuse there me. Anyway, uh, Hold on. I'm having a moment yep. right now. Yep. Give him oh, space. Me. Oh, miniatures. Okay, I'm back. I'm back. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I read some information about this, and their design for this is really interesting. They have a – it can be open 24 hours. They have special key cards for people to go into. Yeah, yeah. I think it's – they set it up kind of like a club, like – like if you get a yeah. membership, you can go in at any time. So somebody like me who you know have a small basement, I can get a board game on this big old table. But like getting two tables set up for minis and you know like the big sheet of plywood or whatever they're using, ah, I can't do that very practically. This is a place where it's like, hey guys, let's all meet up here. I got the key card. We'll all go there. They you know drinks, food, and play all night. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's just such an interesting thing. I mean, in my normal mind, I'm thinking this is not going to work. I mean, the amount of crap that's going to be happening there. But in the perfect world, you look at how this works out. This is such an interesting experiment that they're doing. And I hope it goes well, because that is just such a great thing. I mean, how many gyms have you have a little card to go in and work out anytime you want mm-hmm. to? I would love to have a place that I can have a little card and go in and play games anytime I want to. That is spectacular. <laughs> that is two different personality types, having a gym membership <laughs> and having a board game store membership. Scott, let's talk about some recent adventures. You ready? Hey, you know what? You did first last time. I'm going to take it this time. Have at so it. I rolled a natural six. Ooh, the floor is yours. I got a chance to get in a game of Machi Koro 2. Hmm. This was a 2021 release from Groundling, and it was designed by Masao Suganuma, and the artist is Noburu Hata and Masao Suganuma. I just wanted to say that because it, it, well it done. just feels good. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, this is a sequel to the ever-popular Machi Koro. Mm-hmm. So in Machi Koro, you have a bunch of decks of cards, and they have different establishments on it, anywhere from a cafe to a vineyard, wheat fields, corn fields, all the way up to a shuttle launch you can do. So what you want to do is you lay these out, and they the decks of cards are labeled on the back 1 through 6 or 7 through 12. The third deck of cards are going to be your deck of landmarks. So these are the big things you do. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of the game is you want to build a city that will help itself out, get you a lot of money, and allow you to build three landmarks. So what will happen is you take the first round, everyone goes around, you have five coins, you can buy up to three establishments to get your city going, to kind of get the wheel spinning. Those are just cards that you put in front of you. Exactly. After that happens, you will take the dice. You have two six-sided dice. You can roll one of them, or you can roll two of them. If you roll one, you get numbers one through six. If you roll both of them, you get numbers seven through 12. Well, you can't split them up with like well, no, wait, a that's six not true. and a you, one. If you roll both of them, you could get numbers two through 12. Oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an early morning. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. So two through 12. 
each one of your establishments that you have will have special power mm -hmm. and a color. So if it's a blue card, what will happen is whenever anybody rolls a die or two dice, you will be able to activate that establishment. If it's a green card, you can only activate it on your turn. Yeah. So what you'll do is you'll roll the dice or die, and if one of your numbers comes up that are listed on the top of your cards, you get to activate the power. Mm -hmm. It could be stealing a card from someone else. It could be giving you five coins. And as you go up and you get into the cards that are numbered 7 through 12, they get more powerful. Of course, they're going to be more powerful that sure, way. Sure, sure. The whole idea of the game is you want to be able to build a city that gives you enough money to build the landmarks. Once someone builds three landmarks, game's game over. Yep. Boom, done. So what you'll do is you'll accumulate your money, and the landmarks have three different prices on them. Might be 12, 18, and 26. And those prices are going to be how many landmarks you have out. So if you have no landmarks out, you pay the first price on any of them. Mm -hmm. On the second landmark you play, you're going to pay the second price on any of them are out there. Oh. And of course, the third, you're going to play the third. So they get more expensive. The one that's really interesting is there's a shuttle launch card. And if you play that, game over, boom, right then and there, you have established your city to the point that you're going to the stars. So the game is So it's over. a landmark that you only need this one. I take it it just costs you a You only need the one. So you can sit there and wait and <laughs> keep your money going, keep okay. your money going, and everyone else is buying stuff and making money hand over fist. But if you hold out for that one, you could end the whole game mm -hmm. right then and there. I enjoyed the game. The game is, like I like to call them, a palate cleanser. It's a nice, simple game. The only thing that troubled me a little bit with the game is whenever I played it, getting the three landmarks, once you get to that point that you're in the groove and you're playing the game, it seems to end really quickly because someone can get those three landmarks, boom, 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 very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So it didn't get a chance to outstay its welcome. It just gets to the point where, hey, you're friends, you know each other on a first name basis, and then they leave. So, so it had a, kind of an abrupt ending. Exactly. If, if they could, I mean, you could do house rules or something where you do five landmarks or something like that, just to let it go out a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, I did have a great time with this. I had a lot of fun with this, rolling the dice, seeing if your plans of the numbers that you have in front of you work out. So that's the only thing I had a problem with. But other than that, I mean, it's, it's a delightful game. The artwork is very fanciful cartoonish but not too cartoonish it just really gives a pleasant appearance whenever you're playing it i'm not sure what machi koro is like i mean i'm sure it's very similar but this was a great game to just jump in on play now you said that there were three landmarks and those come from a deck so i can have three different landmarks this game compared with last right yes okay, yes like that, that is very true you have a whole deck of landmarks so it can be different landmarks you get each and every time and various establishments you roll the number you're going to get a resource but uh, they also i assume have the different color buildings where when anybody rolls that number you'll get some coin or you know some sort of benefit from it right yes yeah, so there's another strategy there do you want to go with a lot of blue <laughs> buildings so that you are going to have a chance to get 
not a lot of coins, but you'll be getting coins on just about everyone's turn. Just, yeah, more Or do regularly. you want to go with the green ones that are going to give you a little more coin, but only affect you whenever you roll the dice? Well, I'm glad to see Machi Koro 2. I know Machi Koro 1, it was a game that was so popular that it was nearly solved. I think it was the number three. If you took the three card, I don't know why. I haven't played it for a couple years, but my mind is telling me it was the farmland. Uh, I could be wrong, but it was sort of solved where it's like, okay, you just buy all the farmlands you can and you'll win. So it's kind of nice to see a a, a new version of the game. I I was looking through some of the reviews whenever I saw that you put it in the notes and, you know, just comments that people made on BGG. And it seems like a lot of the effort in Machikoro 2 was – a lot of the effort was made to sort of balance the game a little bit better. Not that the first one was way off, but it sounds like they've corrected any sort of like, oh, this is the dominant strategy. Yes, yes. I love that it's got a good – bit of meat on the bones for being what a 45 minute game ours was pretty quick we played with three players it probably took 30 minutes but yeah as you get more players in there and everything i could see it taking a little bit longer but it just didn't get the chance to outstay its welcome it was over before i really wanted it to be you wanted another turn or two fair enough exactly that's machi koro 2 good play scott yes that was machi koro 2 what did you get in what kind of games did you play Scott, I'm still stuck on dinosaurs. I played Richard Keen's game published in 2019 by Ninth Haven Games, Dinogenics. Uh, this is a competitive game for two to five players in which players try to run the most successful dinosaur park. Like we haven't heard of this theme 19 times. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's always been my dinosaur game. Uh, it was kind of near the beginning of the dinosaur craze, and I don't think at that point that I had a dinosaur game. But I managed to get this one from – it was actually Tiny Fred, the dealer. And, uh, man, I played the crap out of Dinogenic. So what's going on in a game? At its core, you got a worker placement game. Now, a worker placement set collection game. There are a ton of spots on the board where you can allocate your workers to in the turn, with the primary goal being to obtain a set of dinosaur cards to put that dinosaur in your park. So like the brontosaurus, for example, it needs you to have four brontosaurus cards in hand. You simply go to a space where you're allowed to turn in DNA, you discard the four brontosaurus cards, you get a little brontosaurus meeple, and it's actually like laser cut to be shaped like a brontosaurus, and you plop it on your park player board. Other spots, they're going to have ways to gain money, draw more cards, build fences, and construct buildings. That The cards yield dinosaurs, obviously, but the money will get you fences and buildings. I suppose the need for fences here is kind of obvious, right? But the buildings function. Oh, but of course. <laughs> but the buildings function as like little modifiers just for you. You'll actually pick up a building tile, place it in your park, and it's going to have an ability for you moving forward. Some of them are going to allow you to hold more visitors. Some provide uh, like game points, and others will provide you income. And this is a game that plays over about a half dozen rounds, depending on the number of players. And at the start of each round, that's where you're going to get your visitors. The visitor board and overlay show how many tourists are looking to visit parks this round, like it goes into a collective pool. The player in first gets the most of them, and then second gets some visitors and third and so on. Also, players are each going to get a coin for each visitor that comes to their park, so think of it like that's them paying their ticket. And I like that the player boards, they'll limit your capacity to hold visitors, which kind of makes it necessary to build more hotels and kind of snowball the benefit of having people come to your park. At the end of the game, the player with the most points is deemed to have built the best park and is the winner. I have not really looked into this game at all. I thought you Whenever played I this first one. started coming out. No, no, I've never played this huh. one. Whenever I heard it for the first time, I was thinking that there's just a bunch of dice and it was a very simple game. And I, I feel bad that I haven't really looked at it before now. This looks like 
like you said, this is the dinosaur game almost. Yeah, I feel like it, it is. It gives you the look of the island and you're building it. I mean, Dinosaur World, Dinosaur Island, things like that, they look great, but they don't give you the feeling of you're actually on this little island. Mm-hmm. I'm really anxious for this. Now, you say you're building the dinosaurs. Right. Okay. We got dinosaurs. I don't know about you, but I know that there have been scientific studies that have said whenever you have dinosaurs, there is havoc that happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, what kind of havoc happens with these dinosaurs? Uh, uh, honestly, Scott, while it's built into the rules, it rarely happens. They call it rampage. So the T-Rex, for example, can eat visitors and create all kinds of problems if it rampages. And rampage is just rolling a couple of dice. And depending on what comes up, it might it might eat a visitor. It might cause some damage. Or there's even one little part of the die. It's like a smiley face. And that means that, like, thankfully, nothing bad happened. And your visitors thought this was all just part of the show. And you get an extra dollar. Because, like, like they tip you for because they were so amazed, right? But this T-Rex, it, it can eat visitors. It can cause all these problems. So you just make sure that it's not going to rampage. Like each dinosaur has criteria for what makes it rampage. And typically, you just don't put yourself in a position where that's going to happen. There's times where it can actually make strategic sense. Like if I can get a T-Rex down on turn one, I don't mind the havoc it creates because it gives me so much points and reputation that it's worth it. But later in the game when there's actually like, oh, there's a real consequence here, you just don't put yourself in position. So I don't want to say it felt flat in that regard. It's just not like, oh, man, this is going to be great. It's, it's going to be like Jurassic Park the movie and there's going to be dinosaurs rampaging and eating things. No, it's it's – much more focused on building the park and and building up reputation and points that way. I know that with Tiny Epic Dinosaurs, with Dinosaur Island, they've really gone out of their way to give you little dinosaurs to use for the games. Mm -hmm. How do you think these components worked out? Were the components nice? Were they nicely done? Were they rather plain? How did they Uh, work out? I mentioned the player boards uh, because they're fantastic and the art's pretty cool too. I mean, it's what you would expect from dinosaurs, but like that manipulation, you have these manipulation cards that are kind of like take that. They have some cool things going on there. Uh, There's one that steals DNA and the the character, like the image, it is clearly Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park. You think that kind of automation is easy or cheap? You know, anybody who can network eight connection machines and debug two million lines of code for what I bid for this job? <laughs> There's another one called Infest Hotels, and the art has like like a dozen of those tiny little dinosaurs just wrecking a restaurant. And, and you can tell what happened. Like, oh, I, I snuck in and I let a whole bunch of those little dinosaurs loose in your park. <laughs> uh, the meeples, they're different shapes, uh, the, the dinosaur meeples. The fences are screen printed mm-hmm. and they slot right into that player board. I even have the upgraded oh, wow. metal coins. So, like, components are phenomenal with one exception. The building tiles, man, they're small because they need to be, but there's like 24 different ones to draw from to create the market. I suppose I'll give them credit for trying, but like the symbols on the buildings, they're just not intuitive at all. Like I'm constantly checking the reference sheet to see what the building does. And then people are like, wait, what does that one do? Mm. What does that one do again? So you're constantly going back and forth on that sheet. And further, the the art on those buildings is pretty dark. And I don't mean like dark, like grotesque. I mean like the brightness (laughs) on the printer needed to be turned up or something. But all in all, components were, were very good. Sometimes whenever you're playing other games, they can have someone that gets in the lead and runs away with it. Now, I know that some people have said this about this, that Mm. there is an issue with someone getting in the lead and it's hard to catch up. Did you find that in this game? So do we have a runaway that you did your homework on this one? Uh, Well, (laughs) when you create a dinosaur, you're going to move up a reputation track and a points track. 
you score points every round for wherever you are on that points track. So if you get a dinosaur or mm-hmm. two early and somebody else doesn't, and then two rounds of scoring go by, you've already scored twice for two dinosaurs where they have none. That's opportunity number one for someone to run away with the game. The reputation track dictates turn order, which if I created a dinosaur in turn one and you didn't, you're behind in both aspects already. Not to mention that the income is based on the number of visitors you get. And because I'm always going to get an extra visitor or two since I got to go first, can runaway leader happen? Yes, it, it can. It's not every game, but it has happened in some of my plays. Now, is there any way to have like a catch-up mechanism or any way to mitigate the runaway leader? Well, you have that deck of manipulation cards. So a bunch of those have like a take that feel to them where you're going to pick on one player. So Scott, if we're in a five player game, two players get an early jump start. You and I are in, in fourth and fifth because that's just how we play games. We need to make sure that we're not throwing shade at each other. We need to make sure that we're picking on the leaders a little bit and not like eliminating each other through attrition with these cards. I think the game wants it to be a self-balancing issue where, okay, if you're going to use your take that card, you use it on the person who's in first. But, you know, that is dependent on the players. And it doesn't always work out. It almost seems like an evolution experiment where you need to take a look at whoever's the strongest and only strongest survive. So you need the other ones to come together and pick away at the ankles of the brontosaurus and take them out. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. I got to make an effort to give this game a try. So what are your final thoughts? What's your 30-second pitch for this game about it uh well i really like it i mentioned maybe a year ago that i played all the solo scenarios in the rule book i've played maybe 10 or 12 times with friends and it's typically been a hit it's not a perfect game with that couple of issues that we talked about but if we're getting dinosaurs to the table to me dinogenics is my choice i'm anxious to give this one a try then well scott i know that you are a giant fan of a particular 80s cartoon Lunar alignment happened when I saw you posted a picture of this game, so why don't you tell us a little bit about G.I. Joe, the deck-building game? Well, I like to think that there's a golden age of cartoons for everyone, and I feel bad for the children of today because they don't get that. G.I. Joe was this international group of soldiers that were fighting against the forces of Cobra. They really made Cobra feel and look like a bunch of morons a lot of times. Well, they just came out with uh, the G.I. Joe deck building game from Renegade Game Studios designed by T.C. Petty III. Let me tell you what, this is not your television version of Cobra. This is a much tougher version of Cobra. Like a typical deck building game, you get a hand of 10 cards. Now, these cards will be just your normal G.I. Joe soldiers. Mm -hmm. They aren't anything special. They don't have a code name, nothing like that at all. But you do get to select one of six of the main characters with Duke or Scarlet, Lady J, Snake Eyes, Roadblock, or Flint. You didn't even have to write those those down, did you? You know them all. Hey, hey, you're giving them a peek okay, behind yeah. the curtain. Side note, adventures. We're playing at the shop one day, and the, the owner, well, the employee that was working, he had G.I. Joe on the TV. And he's like, hey, Scott, which one is that? Scott just looks over. He's like, oh, that's Zap. <laughs> which one's that? That's Duke. <laughs> you know them all. <laughs> all right. All right. Yes, I'm a secret G.I. Joe file here. Back to the game. You have this hand of cards, so you're going to be going through, and like a typical deck builder, you're going to be picking up different soldiers, different vehicles, different items that are going to help you fight against Cobra. 
Now, the interesting thing with this game is the vehicles. In order to fight against Cobra, which I'll go into here in a moment, you have to have a vehicle. And each one of the vehicles have a certain number of people that they can carry on it. Now, you can send out a whole platoon of different vehicles to fight against a certain scenario. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're ready to fight against one of the scenarios, you need to pick a vehicle and you're going to say, I'm going to send two guys on that. Any other Joes want to go with me? Other people can join in. So this is truly a cooperative game fighting against Cobra. Whenever this happens, you are going to have a storyline that goes along here. So you're going to flip over. For those of you that remember this, the first story that they have is the mass device. So they have to go through and find the three different parts of the mass device. You need to stop Cobra before that happens. You'll flip over a card and there will be an undercover double agent. Well, you look at it and it's a picture of the Baroness. At the bottom of the card, there are going to be different symbols. So there'll be one symbol that has a tank, a jet, or a boat mm -hmm. on it. This will give you bonuses on what type of vehicle you're taking to fight with. So if it has a tank on there and you have a card of one of the vehicles that has a tank on it, well, you're, you're going to get a bonus, get a bonus sure. on that. There's going to be another card underneath there that's going to have a little red card with a number on it. Uh, one, two, sometimes maybe three. Those are going to be complications that come hmm. up. This could be something that affects you one shot, boom, you have to lose one of your characters that you can't take on the mission. Or it might be something where you need to bring Destro into the game or Major Blood, all these different characters that will come in that you weren't expecting. At the bottom, you're going to have a section that has a number in it, and then it'll be a success section or a failure section. You want to be able to get enough special abilities for all the characters that you're putting in there to give you dice to roll. Mm -hmm. And the dice will have either a miss, a hit, or two hits on them. Depending on how many tanks you put in, how many characters you put in, you're going to get a number of dice sure. to roll. You'll roll the dice. You take a look at how many successes there are. If you beat the number that's on there, hey, you beat back this part of this of the uh, scenario. If you didn't, you failed. On the side, there's a little tracker of the danger that you're facing. Of course, it's in the shape of a snake. If you have a success, you can move that little marker down, down into the green area where you're getting a little bit safer, getting closer to feeding Cobra. If you don't make it, well, it's going to go up and there will be something that happens that's going to be bad. You may put Baroness into play. You may have to put a Cobra Battalion over top of one of the cards that you can possibly buy where you have to defeat them before you can buy that card. There's a lot going on in this, and it's one of those things where you're playing a familiar deck building game, like you can pick it up right mm -hmm. away, but they put enough twists in it that give it a new feeling. I really, really enjoyed it. You can play solo. They have solo rules for it. It's okay, but this one really shines whenever you get multiple people playing the yeah, game. Yeah, you get to start bantering back and forth and working together, figuring out how you're going to take on those missions. That does sound cool. Yeah, and the nice thing about it is you have a hangar for your um, uh, for your different vehicles that you mm -hmm. buy. So whenever they come out and they come out in your hand, you put the vehicle in the hangar. So that's available for anyone to use. Oh, that. cool. So you could put that out there and have 
uh, what was it? The whale was their giant hovercraft that they had. You can fit maybe six people on that one. So you're planning on getting a, a, this one all set up. You want to get all the uh, characters you can, all the weapons you can, and then just go crazy and defeat Cobra as, as quickly as you can. It's a fun game. It's very cooperative. I really enjoyed it. The artwork is fun. Uh, you see all the characters. This one is built up definitely for expansions. I mean, there's no question at all that there can be expansions for this. And truly, I cannot wait to see that. I mean, you got to get the flag out there. You got to get the Defiant Space Shuttle in there. There's a lot of things you can do with this game. Okay. Are you buying cards from a market? Is it like you set up a market in the middle with a number of cards in each? Or is it like a river of cards that's shifting that you buy from? How are you acquiring more cards for your deck? You have a deck of cards and you're going to have six cards laying out. So each time you buy something, you flip over a new one and put it in place there. Once you complete the mission, you can then use the points on the cards there to buy things to add into your deck. So it's not like you're going to be buying things beforehand. So you do the mission and then you buy things uh, to go against the mission again if you failed at that turn. How complex is the game? complexity it seems like it's a little bit higher because there's a lot of little things whenever it comes into figuring out how many dice you're going to have going against certain missions each person's going to have special niches that they work better Mm -hmm. with it could be a marksman it could be stealth it could be technology and if those match up with the mission that you're fighting against you may get additional dice You can definitely teach younger kids to play, but there's a little more to it figuring out what you can go into it than just glancing at it quickly and saying, oh, I need this, 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 and this, and this. There's definitely some strategy in who you want to send up against each one of the missions. And do they have the G.I. Joe General? Big they have yes. General Hawk. Oh, yes. no, no, no. You remember the vehicle? There was the G.I. Joe General. It shoots. I, oh, in our last no, level back, no, I think no, I played no. the commercial for the General. Yes, yes, you're right. No, they do not have the General yet. Yeah, like you said, ripe for expansions. G.I. Joe, Oh, the it most certainly game. is. Thank you for that, Scott. It sounds like fun. Bring that to the shop tomorrow. Will do. Running low on supplies during your adventures? Don't want to shell out too much coin to gear up? Level Up's got your back. We've teamed up with Tabletop Tycoon to get listeners of the show 10% off a couple of the biggest titles they carry. First up, Nemo's War. You've heard our thoughts on this one. A grand strategy game jam-packed with meaty decisions. And the theme here, oh, I tell you what, it tells a story every time you play. Plus, Everdell, an early review here at Level Up and a personal favorite for both of us. If you don't have it, you've got to get in on it. Look, not many games get multiple expansions after they release. Only the best. And Everdell, it's one of them. The perk, just for you, is 10% off Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition just by using promo code LEVELUP2022. You can visit their website at tabletoptycoon.com or click the link on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Add any of these gems to your cart, that's Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition, and use promo code LEVELUP2022, all caps, no spaces, for 10% off. Get these games on the table and level up. You had to have gotten another game. I sure did. I got a chance to play Breakneck Derby from Big Ham Games. This is published by Pittsburgh designer Mike Clark, 2021 game. 
First and foremost, Scott, I got to say, Mike is a wizard with remembering names. I'm always enamored when somebody <laughs> – we had a seven-player game of Breakneck Derby set up. We had a big old derby, and he could look at any given – okay, it's your tournament. It's your turn, Sarah. You're up, Patrick. And I'm like, how do – I don't remember three people here. Like, you were there, so I knew your name, but aside from <laughs> – no. Uh, I, I think that's one heck of a quality. A uh, really nice guy Mike is. He even donated a copy to uh, our giveaways for the last couple of meetups, so thank you for that, Mike. Breakneck Derby, this is a fast-paced, card-driven game for one to, well, for two to get this, Scott, ten players. Two to ten. Oh, wow. And as you might imagine, our theme here is horse racing. So what's going on in Breakneck Derby? Let's start with the setup. At setup, you set up your board, which represents the racetrack, and then you deal everybody three cards from a modified standard deck of cards. Think like two regular packs of bicycle cards with some number of face okay. cards removed. It's it's different, but it's standard playing cards. Each player is going to begin the game with a three-card hand. Now, depending on the number of players, you're going to deal out a, a variable number of horses for each player. So if you're playing with four players, uh, as there are ten horses, each player will get two horse cards, and leftover horses are played by the house. Now, in this case, we did a seven-player game, so we had seven people, each with a horse, and the house represented the final three. And I'll get to the house. Uh, it works quite eloquently. You set each of the ten horse standees in the starting position, and you're off to the races. Ooh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, we know we're playing cards, but uh, we should first note a couple of things. Track has four lanes, one for each suit. Hearts, diamonds, clubs, and spades. Also, when you play a card, it goes into a five-card bonus hand on the board, and where you place it shows how many spaces that horse moves. This means that if I play a three of diamonds into the one slot, horse number three is going mm -hmm. to move one space down the diamond lane. If I play it into the five spot, it's going to move five. Pretty simple, right? Right, right. Now, eventually, that five card bonus area is going to be full. And at this point, you're going to dole out some bonus movement. Suppose that there's a three card straight, a six, a seven, and an eight. Well, then horse six, seven, and eight will all three get some bonus movement. What this does, because you only have three cards and you only draw a new one when you play one at the, at the end of your turn, that is, you're not always going to have a card for one of your horses. This lets you manipulate the potential bonus movements based on where your cards are in that five card bonus area. Now, once it's full and you dole out the hmm. bonus movement, it just resets. You wipe all those cards out of there and you start anew. I know this sounds like a lot, but basically it means it's good to have your cards in the bonus hand, you know, played down on the board. And if you have the potential to work with another player to create a flush or a straight, then the benefit's mutual. So the turn is playing one card and then drawing a replacement. Whatever number you played and horse you moved, it's that player's turn. If you played a card that belongs to the house, then a card is simply played from the top of the deck. Now, Scott, I hate dummy players in games. I hate it. But in Breakneck Derby, it's so passive that it's not a bother. You just go, okay, we move uh, horse number 10. That belongs to the house. We'll just flip over the top of the deck. Okay, horse number one gets to move. Player one, you're up. It's that quick. It's so simple. Okay. In fact, you even start finding yourself really interested in what the house is going to flip because it's like, man, nobody's playing my card. <laughs> Maybe when the house just doles one off the top, it's one of yours. You get to move and then you get the turn. Last thing I should point out here is the face cards. They have some, we'll say, more profound effects like Okay, the jack lets you move every horse except for one of your choice because that horse got jacked. <laughs> they can be really influential in their effects. Play continues until someone crosses the finish line and wins the game. I know that you've had a chance to play this whenever you first got it and you played it at a meetup. You've played it a couple times here. 
how is the repeat play of this? Um, I mean, it, it seems like it's going to be a different game each time you play it. But even with that, I mean, a lot of times games can get kind of samey, but this doesn't seem like it. What did you think? It can be different based on a, a few variables, most notably the number of players. I think if you're playing, a, say, a three-player game and you each have three horses, you have a lot more agency over what you're doing. Whereas if you're playing in a uh, in this seven-player game, for example, and like I was the one horse, if I didn't have an ace in my hand to move myself, I was basically just moving someone else and then my, my turn was over. Maybe a good way to do this would be like, okay, what what do we like? What do we not like here? Because there's, there's definitely a little bit of both. So – what do I like about Breakneck Derby? You can actively manipulate the bonus hand, and that gives some real strong strategy into every decision make, even if you're not playing a card of your own, more so if you're playing one of your own cards. The corners of the track, they prevent lane shifts. So normally, let's say I'm in the club lane and I play mm. a diamond, I get to, to move in. You don't want to be on the outside lane as you enter into one of those corners because you're going to be stuck out there no matter what is played. You're only going to get to move along that path. And like the one on the farthest outside has a lot more spaces that they have to traverse. Right. If a horse moves, say, five spaces and the last space that it would move is already occupied – then the entire movement of five is canceled out. The horse just doesn't get to Ooh. move. And this, and this gives you a means of playing a card that doesn't benefit you at all because you have to sometimes, but you're not benefiting the other player too. Mm -hmm. Also, the game doesn't overstay its welcome. I think that most games are going to last about 45 minutes, and this is really fulfilling for that time frame. Was there anything in the game that you didn't like? I mean, no matter what game you play, I mean – you could love a game, but there's always some mechanic or something that doesn't stick in. So far, it sounds like you love the game. Is there anything that kind of turns that love down? Well, yeah, bit? and it's going to be that way for every game. Let's, okay, what what didn't I like? Our seven-player game, Scott, I was horse number one. I was the flying ace, so I would move anytime an ace was played. Now, there's an equal number of aces all the way up to tens, but my God, I swear the ace was played maybe six times and, and some other number <laughs> like the eight was played maybe a dozen times. I could get up to use a restroom and come back and it might still not be my turn. Nobody had played an ace yet. Uh, that's because their turn mm -hmm. order is based on the previously played card. In a strange way, theoretically, you could go the entire game and never have a turn. Theoretically. Obviously, hmm. someone's going to have an ace in hand and nothing better to do. So if they're going to burn a card, they might as well play it for the guy who's furthest in the back, who's not a threat. But legitimately, that means you can go a long while without a turn. And I liked it much, much more when we did a four-player game for that reason. Having a couple of horses gives you a little bit more agency, as I said. There's a definite benefit here to having your own cards in hand. If someone plays an ace to the one spot, they move me one, and then the turn shifts to me. Then I play an ace to the five spot. I just moved six spaces mm. and I created a pair in the bonus hand so that I get to have some bonus movement when the bonus hand is full. And since I just played an ace, it's my turn again. Now, what if I throw in a Ooh. face card or something now? Oh, things have the potential to snowball. Even without the ace, say my next card is a two. I can play to the two slot and hope for a three card straight or some other means of the bonus hand benefiting me even more than just having the pair. Make sense? It does. February, I always get together with some college friends. We have a big poker yeah. night. Lots of cards being played, things like that. Hearing this and hearing about your straights and everything like that, how is the 
learning curve on this game for people who don't normally play You know, games. I didn't share my next thoughts on the game with you, but I swear you could read my mind. I swear you're in my computer right now. <laughs> okay. So, you know how there's like the game day where you're going to play No Thanks and Euchre or you're having a poker night. Those those games that shine for the game themselves. You don't have resin resources or miniatures, castle walls or woodland critters. Right. It's a board, standees, and cards. And that's perfectly fine by me and some of my favorite games lack the flashy components that we all tend to prefer there's nothing wrong per se with the components here but the style of gameplay coupled with it it's gonna feel really different if you're breaking this out after a game of like root or mansions of madness it's gonna stick mm. like oh this is different but overall it's a very good engaging game that i prefer at lower player counts and i think to your point yes if you have a group that regularly plays euchre or cribbage or poker they're gonna be able to pick this up really really quickly it's approachable for non-gamers but perhaps at the expense of if you have a game day where we're playing root uh, i mentioned root and mansions of madness this mm. might feel this might feel watered down compared to what some folks want in their hobby gaming. Okay, okay. I, I like this. I'm, I might have to borrow your copy here coming up in February. Well, you can borrow my copy, Adventures, if you're looking to get a hold of a copy. Breakneck Derby is available on the Game Crafter, and Mike's got a sale starting on January 22nd, so you can get your copy at a discount. That's Breakneck Derby, Big Ham Games, available on Game Crafter. Check it out. Fantastic. Great stuff. Top 100 update, Scott. This is an exciting one. We've got some cool ones in the new highest peaks. Nemesis okay. is up to number 16. Number 16 wow. for Nemesis. Dune Imperium has cracked the top 20. Sitting at number yes. 18. Lost Ruins of Arnak, which has always been closely behind, is at number 33. Higher than it's ever been. Eclipse, second on from the galaxy. And I stand by, I think this has top 10 written all over it. It's currently at number 36. Pax Pamir, up to number 48. Lisboa at 59. And Pandemic Legacy Season 0 is up to number 80. We've got some birthdays. Starting with the Quacks of oh. quedlinburg has been on the top 100 for two years. Azul for four years. Five tribes, seven years. Mage Knight, the board wow. game, has been on there for ten. Previous number one game, Twilight Struggle, has been in the top 100 for 16 years. Wow, that definitely shows some staying power there. And I, I got to go back and look at Mage Knight. I remember whenever that game first came out with the little things from WizKids. Those, like, clicky standees. What do they call those? Yes, yes. They were clicks. Yeah, clicks. I mean, C-L-I-X, yeah. They've gone on to hero clicks and all sorts of things. It's such a neat thing to see that that game got another iteration and is still so popular. That, that's wonderful there. Finally, at 18 years, Power Grid. It's almost ready to start drinking. Well, Scott, today's review game, Moonrakers, is one that you got, so I'm going to make you do the walkthrough. I'm glad to do it, and here we go. Adventurers, today we're going to take a look at Moonrakers. This is a game from 2020, designed by Austin Harrison, Max Anderson, and Zach Dixon, and published by IV Games. Now, have you ever wanted to be the captain of a ragtag group of smugglers running missions throughout outer space? Working with others to build your prestige to get better and better jobs? Well, 
Moonrakers might be your game. In Moonrakers, you're the crew of a ship trying to complete missions that are made available to you. In order to complete these missions, you need to upgrade your ship, add crew, and most importantly, negotiate with the other crews trying to do the same thing as you. The setup is pretty simple. You get a ship, you get three credits, and you get a handful of cards to start your starfaring business. Each player gets a hand of 10 identical cards. These are the cards you're going to start your deck building with. You have two game boards to place on the table. These game boards will have a place for crew and ship upgrades, and the other will be for open jobs and end-of-game objectives. You also have a separate board for your ship. It really has a great presence on your table. On your turn, you will select a job. This is a bit trickier than you think. Each job will require a certain amount of resources you get from your cards in your hand. Reactors, shields, damage, or thrusters. Each type will give you a different action from adding to your turns to drawing extra cards. The jobs have a difficulty from 1 to 4, and yes, the 4s are pretty impossible at times. When you select a job, you can ask for help. This is your chance to make deals with the other captains and complete quests. You can split the money you make, you can make a deal on the cards that you'll get for finishing the job, or you can deal out money that will help others recruit a crew that may make them better than you. This makes for a tricky game. When you select the job and make your deals, you then start to play your cards. You need to play your cards carefully as you only have a limited amount of actions to make the mission successful. Once you finish your cards, then it's time for the crew you took with you to play theirs and hopefully clean up. Then you divvy up the rewards and proceed to the next phase, upgrades. After the mission is complete, you have a chance to upgrade your ship. If you negotiated well, you could be sitting on a number of credits. Do you want to buy those extra thrusters to make your ship faster? Do you want to hire that robot, a non-IP infringing astromech maybe? to help you break the codes to salvage wrecked ships. There are so many directions you can play in this game to make your ship the best in the galaxy. Do you want to create an all-around great crew? Do you want to create a niche crew that will entice others to want to take you with them all the time? Or do you want to just lie about being able to help just to see the team flop and you cruise to victory? It's all up to you whenever you sit down to play Moonrakers. Now let's go back, we'll talk to Patrick and see what he thought and my thoughts on this game, Moonrakers. Connecting. Connection established. Moonrakers Network. Tasks 454,312. 390 current. Accessing Moonrakers Articles of Agreement.zip. Applicable to captains of Sorelia, Comac. Ventus, Magnomi, Menko. Loading Moonrakers Articles of Agreement. Awaiting input. Contracts loaded. Reactors initialized. Objectives awaiting input. Command terminal ready. Planning phase output initialized. Shields charged. Reactors ready. Thrusters initialized. 
Hold on to your butts. Well, Scott, thank you for the walkthrough of how to play today's 8-Bit Breakdown review game, Moonrakers. Let's give this the 8-Bit Breakdown as we always do, starting with bit number one, the art and components. What'd you think? Well, the art and components, I have to say, are very unique. The artwork for this is rather simple. It's kind of dark. The boards that you have are done in a dark navy blue mm -hmm. with some black in it. The cards are going to be more of like an orange, yellow, but still it, it's a very dark looking game. It's a good thing that there's no gravity in space, no air friction, because the designs of the spaceships are rather unique, I will have to say. If they were flying in, like, in oxygen, in air, I'm not sure if they would be viable as an <laughs> actual aircraft. But in space, hey, anything goes. So they're very unique. It's a different look. So I think that, in a way, makes it its own universe in uh, almost yeah they definitely it pull out the uh, sci-fi theme with the the ships and the the artwork on the cards which i agree with you it's not it doesn't blow me away or anything but it does kind of capture the sci-fi feel yeah it's like a whole different universe it's nothing like oh this is similar to that game or this is similar to that game it's its own thing really now we could have the kickstarter exclusive version the coins, the metal coins are spectacular. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are great. Whenever you're getting the jobs done or making deals, tossing those metal coins, such a great sound to it, really, really does a great job for the game. You got a really nice now, insert for that box, too. Oh, yeah. The insert is broken down beautifully. The little symbols for the different cards for thrusters or reactors put them right in there everything is has its place and that's wonderful oh yeah the only thing that i was a little down on was the card quality the cards are a little light they could very easily get bent and i gotta find sleeves for these square cards oh yeah but other than that it's not similar to anything which makes that a good thing i even wrote down the word overproduced a little bit and I, th I think the production here is just phenomenal. Yeah, the cards don't have like a linen finish. I'll, I'll give you that one. But like overproduced, that's a term that some gamers are going to give whenever a game has components that are better than what they need to be like unnecessarily yeah. good. And in, in this case, we're dealing what is primarily a deck builder negotiation game. Think like you need the pieces that you would have in a game of Dominion. And obviously this is different, but. I suppose you could make the argument that this game could have been created with an MSRP of like 50 bucks, maybe a little bit less. I'm pretty sure that version that you have is 100. And I'm mm -hmm. sure a lot of it comes down to that beautiful box, the fantastic insert, the metal coins. You know. I, I can see where like the ship's just being a score tracker. It could have just been a yellow chit, a green chit, et cetera, with, with an image on there. So that argument can be made, but man, I love the production here. I think they did a, a fantastic job. Even the way that the boards are set up. Mm -hmm. I mean, the boards, it's not one big board you're playing with. There are a couple small boards that you put out that are important for parts you put on the ship, what crew you get in, what jobs you're going to do. Plus, everyone has their own board as well, symbolizing their ship. So there, yeah, I will have to say for a game like this, it could have been just done bare minimum and opening great but yes they did take that extra level to make everything work out very very well and look really spectacular well let's talk bit number two theme and immersion 
You do get a little sense of improving your ship and crew with the upgrades you can acquire, as well as the deck-building elements within the game. A lot of this game, though, comes through negotiating with other players and, and that wheeling and dealing around the table. When that happens, that's the immersion, I, I think, in Moonrakers. What do you think? The biggest part of this game is the negotiations. Mm -hmm. You have jobs that you are not going to be able to do on your own. I'm going to get more into this into bit number five in the meat of the game. But whenever you're going into this and making your ship, you want to take a look at what types of jobs you're going to be good at because everyone gets a little objective, a secret objective at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. So you want to kind of go towards that in order to get some extra points. There's that immersion of what kind of crew do you want to get? What type of ship do you want to build that really, really gets difficult because everyone's trying to go for the same things and money is hard to come by. I mean, it's not like you're going to be swimming in money. You have to be very, very careful what you do with this. Bit number three is complexity. And I'm thinking there's not that much complexity here beyond what you would find in other deck builders. There's only a handful of icons that you have to get used to. The iconography is very well done. Uh, you carry out your turn with the cards you have available. You buy new cards for your deck and or upgrades for your ship, which are simply state-based effects that are going to alter the rules for you in some way. And that's about it. Did I miss something in complexity? No, um, it, it is. It's, it's a simple game. The complexity comes into the negotiations. The X factor in this game, where it's not really what's on the board, it's how you interact with the other players. Mm -hmm. That's where the complex part of the game comes into. Once again, hold on. We got a lot going on in the meat of the game. <laughs> Now then, I'm going to take this next one here, sure. the rule book and the learning curve. Uh -huh. Now, the rule book, yes, this is definitely one of those times whenever you said it is overproduced. This rule book was overproduced. Oh, yeah? It's a beautiful rule book. First thing, you have an index, a table of contents at the very beginning of the book, breaking things down to game setup, gameplay, and glossary. You have a glossary for things in the back here. Mm -hmm. They go through everything, mission leader, scoring prestige, types of cards, gameplay example. They go through everything in this, and everything is split up in chapters. So whenever you're flipping through, you may get to a blank page, but you look on the other page, and they have the three sections, game setup, gameplay, glossary, and they highlight what section you're on. I mean, this looks like a serious manual you would have at a job of whenever you're going through how to use a TPS printer or something like that. Who knows? They went into a lot of detail with this, a lot of notes, a lot of examples. I mean, They knocked it out of the park. And just the look of it, everything comes up like you have little windows on your computer mm -hmm. on these pieces of paper. Yeah, they did a spectacular job with this of putting everything out there. Now, what did you think about the learning curve? I, if you've played a deck builder or two, this should only take one round to fully understand. I was actually kind of surprised. I was expecting Moon, you know, Moonrakers. You see all these like really sweet components and like we saw their setup at PAX. I was like, wow, this is going to be like a space opera, some crazy big grandiose game. And it's not that. It is a deck builder with negotiation and learning curve for me was as simple as I've seen this style of game before, the, these mechanisms before. They're implemented differently here, but it took literally a round to fully understand how to play the game. Easy learning curve. So bit number five, where's the meat? You've been waiting for it. Tell me, Scott, where's the meat in Moonrakers? 
Oh, wow. The meat of this game, the negotiations and your shipbuilding. Mm-hmm. You have different types of missions you're going to go on. So whenever you go on a mission, you're going to go out there and you're trying to transport something to another place. Or you might be picking someone up and taking someplace else. You may be destroying an asteroid. There's different things that happen. What you want to do is whenever you go out on one of those missions, you're going to say, hey, does anyone want to go on a mission with me? So right away, you take that chance of going on a mission that's too big for you, Mm -hmm. thinking that others are going to come with you to help out. Well, you don't really know until you ask. So that could blow up in your face right there. Whenever you're building your ship, do you want to go all in on weapons or thrusters or something like that? So you know you are going to be the top person for these type of missions. Yeah. Yeah. Logan so went crazy with can- all the green upgrades, which provided all sorts of extra shielding. And if it was a green mm-hmm. mission, you just, okay, Logan, join me. And it was all but a guarantee. Exactly. Exactly. But the thing is, you had to pay him for his abilities that he had. So it's not like you're just coming with me. I'm going to reap all the rewards. No, you have to negotiate some sort of contract for him to be willing to go along with you. Mm -hmm. So that is the biggest part of the game. Yeah. Like you said, if you played a deck builder, there's nothing really that new here that you're going to be doing with that. But it's the negotiating part of this that makes it tricky because you have to keep an eye on where people are in the prestige track. And if they help you, you could be something where you have this one amazing contract you're going to go on, but you need to make it sweet for the person come help you, but you don't want to make it too sweet that they're going to overtake you and do better than you. Yeah, it's definitely got the the meat in the deck building here, which I I suppose that's obvious. I think most deck builders require a a great deal of skill and give you a whole lot of agency over your game. But like you said, negotiating at the table, who's willing to go on a mission with you? Who pipes up that they're willing to do it cheaper? How cheap is too cheap for tagging along? What upgrades can I buy now that are going to benefit me down the road versus which ones might not be effective at later stages of the game? You know what I found for a relatively simple rule set? There's a lot of meat in this one. Mm-hmm. There, there definitely is. And the important thing also is whenever you're trying to get people to go on a mission with you, no one knows what cards anyone has. So you're kind of going in on this blind. Yeah, they may or so may not be So you could go halfway you. through it and end up being like one card short. And you could theoretically say, yeah, I'll go on the mission with you and intentionally screw it up for the person mm-hmm. that's leading the mission. But if you do that that one time, you are going to get marked. So no one's going to really want to negotiate <laughs> with you and go on a trip with you there. So we got a lot of meat in Moonrakers. Does it have replayability and variability? Bit number six. I think it does. And I think it really has to do with two things. One how do you want to build your ship? Mm-hmm. Do you want to build it with more reactors? Do you want to build it with more weapons? What do you want to do? It can be different each and every time that you play it. The other thing that makes it so variable is the people you're playing with. Yes. Because you never know what type of personality is coming in to play with you. It could be the person, like you said, that's going to fail just to make sure you don't get points or you don't get money. There's so many different personalities, and that will affect this game drastically each and every time you play this. Indeed. Yeah, it's going to play a little bit similar each time as far as the deck building goes, because frankly, that deck of crew cards just isn't all that big. I kind of wish there were more or that they expand on it. The missions, they do have plenty of variables in the missions, but let's be honest, there's easy, medium, and hard ones. 
Beyond that, it doesn't much matter what the name of it is or the differences in the requirements. There's easy, medium, and hard. I mean, it does matter in the game, but as far as like making each game feel crazy different based on what the missions are that are out, and they're constantly cycling anyway, probably not as much. The replayability surfaces depending on your game group. Like you said, Scott, it depends on who's coming to the table and how much you guys love dipping into the well of wheeling and dealing and backstabbing and negotiating. This definitely gets a feeling of... It's something like along the lines of Firefly, where you're flying around taking these jobs just to make ends meet to keep your ship flying while you're going and playing this game. Well, how about downsides? Bit number seven. Every game has its share of downsides. What did you think? I think it really comes in sometimes whenever you have the number of jobs that are out there. Mm -hmm. The jobs you could have out there could be all hard you're stuck and you can't get any of the jobs done. Now, I think that there is a mechanic in there where you can wipe those, but it takes your whole turn. And a lot of times you don't want to take your whole turn to do that. You need to keep things going. The other downside, like I said, if anything, it just with the production, with the cards are just a little flimsy, I think, with this, mm-hmm. that you worry about if something gets bent a little bit too much, you're going to automatically know that that's a reactor card from then on. Right. Out Just like with Base Dominion, I know which ones are coppers and estates. Yeah. Yeah. That can so happen. So that's this it. One. But other than that, I can't really think of many downsides. I mean, they do a great job of the production of the rule set, and it's very much entertaining. The only the other downside I could say is there was absolutely no bond in this. And I was expecting that whenever I heard Moonrakers. <laughs> nice. How about this? I want more crew cards. We made it through that deck in a Mm four-player game. I think we made it through uh, in the three-player game and as well as whenever we played two-player. I want more crew cards. I want a little bit more variability there. I can see where metagaming can arise. Like, no one's going to help the player because they're up by four points. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but metagaming in general can be. Uh, There isn't going to be a whole lot of discovery after a game or two because, like I said, you'll see just about all the cards in those couple of plays. Now, you don't need discovery in this game. That's not a strong point. But if you're looking for a game that's going to constantly blow you away with that new card that we saw this time, it's probably not going to do that. Lastly, there's a potential for kingmaking here. Any game that awards points when players work together, you know what you got to do? You got to find that weak link at the table that's willing to tag along for way too cheap and you got to take advantage. You know, I'm reading through some of the comments on BGG and a lot of folks are saying, oh, no, it's deck building munchkin. <laughs> I'm not anti-munchkin or anything, but I guess what the sentiment there is, is that munchkin has this this potential where one person gets ahead and they're at nine points and everybody else just beats up on them. And then the next person Mm -hmm. starts climbing. Everybody else just beats up on them. Now, on this one, that's probably unlikely because if I get to nine points, I just got to find a cheap, simple mission that I can do on my own for that 10th point. There are still ways between the missions and – oh, not the upgrades, the contracts. I could fulfill that 10th point through a contract and there's nothing anyone can do to stop me. So, it's not as drastic as as you find in Munchkin, for example – but I can see where, you know, it goes back to that metagaming thing. Like, well, once somebody's up by right. X amount, you just stop helping them. Not necessarily a downside, more of a, a, a game requiring self-balancing that if the players don't adhere to, you can have someone just take advantage of the weak link and win that way. That said, bit number eight, was it fun and who's it for? I think it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed playing this game. Bits that you're playing with, the look of the game it does take me into a different type of universe that I'm used to playing in. That, I think, is a lot of fun. The fun part with this, the negotiation, 
whenever we played this, there was nothing that really came out where there was viciousness coming out with our negotiations. No, no one was reasonable. complaining about anything. Things worked out well. Everyone played well. Now, I don't know if, if it's going to get dark uh, after a couple more <laughs> plays or whatever, but it was a good time. I enjoyed it. So what did you think? Oh, I thought Moonrakers was incredible. No, I, I like deck builders, so I'm, I'm easy to appease here, really. And I like negotiating. I like being the used car salesman at, you know, at the table. I think that's a lot of fun. Who's it for? You ever hear that guy that says Dominion's all right, but it's not very interactive? Put mm-hmm. this in front of him and see if it hits ah. a spot. You know what I mean? Deck builders have become much better at having players interacting, no doubt. But Moonrakers kicks it up a notch by incorporating that negotiation. That player element's going to be a huge hit or miss for your group. And you probably know who you are when I say that. Quite frankly, it's easy to say that a review game was great, but then we put it on the shelf for a long while. You know, maybe it comes back down once in the year, but Moonrakers is easy to teach. It's got plenty of depth. Uh, the replayability comes from the other people that you're playing with, not so much from mm-hmm. the game itself. Like whenever a game is replayable just in its own mechanisms, not from what surprises or curveballs can it throw, that makes it easier to get to the table. And I'm pretty sure Moonrakers is going to be back a few times this coming year. I liked it. Definitely looking forward to it coming back to the table. Yes, yes, most definitely. today it was a cold blustery january day we needed to play a game so we decided to play a game that had pretty much no colors and whatever colors were involved were black and gray blood red (laughs) and we thought yeah sure let's do that that will do wonders for our emotional status But let me tell you what, we had a blast playing the game of Eschaton. Mm -hmm. So we got a chance to play that, and you play a cult that is trying to give sacrifices to the Dark Lords. Yeah. But while you're doing this, you are deck building. You're trying to get a deck that works well together. You're trying to take over certain parts of the land to make sure that you have the most area covered up on on the board. I don't know what I was expecting from this game, but what I got out of it was nothing I expected, and it was all good. I thoroughly love this game here. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah, What were your thoughts on it? Oh, love Eschaton. Uh, Well, let's start here. Scott, let me ask you. Do you see a future game day where you're bringing this game back to the table? I certainly hope so. Uh, I definitely want to play this. I mean, hey, Anything that has like demonic Santas you can play, I mean, I am <laughs> in. Santa. You know what? I've had it out a few times this year. Uh, Jimmy got himself a copy. I taught him and his wife how to play. I've had it out on the table with the lobsters, and it's one of the, you know, I always say, oh, it's one of my evergreens. Eschaton is definitely an evergreen. If you didn't own this game, would you buy it? Well, that's easy. Yes, I absolutely would. This is one that I want to have in my collection. If I was not doing this podcast with you and had access to it, yes, I would buy it <laughs> after we had played it. So I think it we're- was such a great time playing that game in with a theme that is so dire and depressing. But we have laughed and joked and so much over this game. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, and I look forward to playing it again anytime possible. It sounds like we both look back fondly on Eschaton and would both recommend it. Most definitely. Yes, yes, yes. All right, let's keep the show going. We got an adventure on the horizon. 
We got a chance to give a, a sample taste of this one at PAX Unplugged, and I was so psyched for this. I, I didn't know what to ex really expect until I saw the helicopter that could attack you, and I was in. Well, if you could tell from that little teaser from Scott, we're talking Thunder Road from Restoration Games, a two to four player game that plays in about one hour. Scott, this is a re-implementation of a 1986 Milton Bradley game, originally designed by Jim Kiefer, but tinkered with and updated by the Restoration team. Man, they do good when they do this sort of thing. I want to know where I was in 1986 that I did not see this game because I would have just snatched this thing off the shelves whenever I saw that. <laughs> I was two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I was older than two. We'll just put it at that. Uh, Adventures, this one's live as of January 26th on Kickstarter. So let's break down Thunder Road Vendetta. The theme here is sort of Mad Max. You've got three vehicles and you've got a helicopter and you're racing down a strip of road. You got obstacles. You can shoot your opponents. You can bump into each other or just kick it into high gear and outpace everyone else. And the goal is to have the last car standing. Yes. Now, those of you that have played Gaslands or are familiar with Gaslands, a lot of times whenever you're trying to get the cars into gear, it takes a while to get out of first or second or third gear. This game here, you're in high gear right from the start, and you are just flying down the road. This is the entry-level drug for Gaslands. Easily, I could say that. So mechanically, this game is going to have, well, it does in fact incorporate dice. You're going to roll them at the start of the round, then taking turns, players allocate these dice to their vehicles for movement. Plus, you've got a dashboard that gives you some abilities. So if you roll poorly, like you roll a 101, a 2, and a 3, that doesn't necessarily spell doom. Obviously, you want some higher numbers in there, but most of these allocation spots on the dash are low numbers so that you have a means of allocating them. So you're given a way to spend them. That's where you're going to activate things like Nitro boosts, or uh, or your favorite, Scott, the attack helicopter. Yes. <laughs> now, the board is three pieces that are constantly shifting. Like, we've seen this in Black Angel or Selenia, where when one car reaches the end of the third strip of track, well, then you take the first strip that everybody started on, and you just plunk it in front of it and shift the whole thing down. So, it's constantly repeating with these same three pieces of board. If ever you need to shift the board and somebody's still back on that last piece, they're out. But I tell you what, Scott, this game felt very thematic. Yeah, it definitely did. And that mechanic is one that is so simple, you don't know why more people don't use it in games. It's such a great idea of taking that one behind and putting it in front, and you've got a whole new thing here. So you could hypothetically race forever if you wanted to. Such a great little mechanic. Now, each player's got a small car, a medium car, and a heavy car, and they, they have little variables as far as what they can do. But really, the goal of the game is to, when you're driving your car, if you can bump somebody into an oil slick, if you can bump somebody off the road into the side of a canyon. And boy, I tell you what, we were doing that. We played this one at PAX, and it was like, oh my goodness, this is uh, this is wild. We're getting to, it felt like... Um, Twisted Metal. Kind of. Kind of like Twisted Metal, where you just want to be the last person standing. And the thing is, I mean, you're adding things on it. The nitrous, you can have guns on things. There's any number of things you can add onto it. So it's, it's a mixture of twisted metal, death race and Mad Max, mm -hmm. but all just the right amounts of them. 
Well, I'm going to be back, and you know what else I'm going to be doing is I want to, just like you said with Gaslands, how you're supposed to, like, buy Matchbox cars and, mm-hmm. like, paint them and add guns to them and, like, have some fun building your own. Man, we were playing that game, and I was like, I am totally going to break out some old micro machines <laughs> and some G.I. Joe guns and, like, make my own cars for this. I, I, I could just picture playing this. Can you imagine a four-player game with 12 cars on the table, four helicopters on that little track? It's going to be mayhem. Oh, it most certainly is, and it's going to be glorious mayhem. <laughs> Well, that is Thunder Road Vendetta, live on Kickstarter. Now this is from the Restoration team. Check it out. Scott, I'm really glad that we finally have the chance to talk about this one in an episode. One of the games you picked up at PAX, you picked up immediately. And I'm telling you what, you were showing it to me. And I was like, if he doesn't buy this, I'm going to end up having to buy this. So I'm actually really glad that you did. I can't wait to borrow a copy. It's all the hotness right now. I can't scroll on my Facebook without seeing people talking about Final Girl. Tell us about Final Girl. Yes, yes. Final Girl was one that came to Kickstarter I looked at it, and it was a solo-only game, and I was like, "Uh, I don't know. But then I started seeing people getting it right before PAX. I got to say, Van Ryder Games could not have planned this any better, because everyone started getting their boxes of Final Girl right before PAX Unplugged. Mm -hmm. So, of course, then it's like, oh, why didn't I back this? I hope Van Ryder Games is there and has some copies of that. Oh, there's Van Ryder Games. They have a ton of copies of that. I'll tell you what, they didn't have any left on Sunday. Take my money. And that's what they did. Final Girl is basically the trope from horror movies where you have that one final girl who fights the bad guy at the very end of the movie. What they've done is they've made a great little game where they've adapted the rules from Hostage Negotiator into Final Girl. What you're going to be doing is you are going to be the final girl fighting different monsters. The first five movies that they put out, The Happy Trails Horror, that so one's there. Jason. That, yes, that one is Jason, but they oh, call let's him do that. Let me Hans. See, let me see if I can name them. I don't know my horror movies, so you tell me what the, what the name of the box is, and I'll see if I can tell you what the IP that they're shooting for is. Frightmare on Maple Lane. Okay, that's clearly Nightmare on Elm Street. Got it. That's uh, uh, the haunting of Creech Manor. Oh, Amityville Horror? No, because that it doesn't have It could be Amityville guy. Horror. It could be Poltergeist. Poltergeist. It's, it's a couple things there. Okay, yes. sure, sure. There's a couple other ones that a little odd here. So Carnage at the Carnival could be. There was an old '80s one called Funhouse. Mm-hmm. But this one here, you have a mad ringmaster that has these killer puppets that come around. So it's a little bit of puppet master and fun house and different things there. So you're supposed to let me guess, but I would have never got that. So okay. Exactly. That's why I just <laughs> jumped right in there. What's the other one? Um, Slaughter in the Groves. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure what this one would be based on because it's a type of like an African shaman that's going after people to kill them and everything. Hmm. But you have the non-IP infringing bad guys that are coming after you. So, first of all, you have to get the final girl core set. And understand there's no game there with the core set. Exactly. This is going to be all the stuff for you to play the game. Mm -hmm. Or as they like to put it, this is your VCR. Got it. This is going to be the thing where you have your tokens for health, your dice, 
your main action cards that you can use for the final girl, the different meeples for the people that are going to be chased down. You have the meeples for the killers and for the final girl. You have all that in the core game set. You will then go and get the, as they put it, the VHS tapes of each one of the games. Now, the thing that is so unique with this game is you open up the board, the the box. It's magnetized on the one side, so you open it up. Inside, you have the cards for the killer. You have any special tokens needed for, I know, for Happy Trails. They have a golf cart. They have a boat. Different things you can hide in different rooms. And then on the other side of it, you open it up and there will be information on the two final girls that are involved with this game. They'll give you two final girls that will be fighting the bad guy. What makes this so interesting is, as I said, they're magnetized. You open them up and on the inside of one of them, you have the console, if you will, for the killer. This is where you're going to put down cards on him as far as what type of special powers he has, what the finale is that you're going to be doing, where you're going to be fighting him, plus also keeping track of all their health on there. And to clarify, when you say you open it up, it actually comes off of the bot. Like you open it up and take it off and set it on the table. It is the board that houses all of the villains' stats and whatnot as you were. Exactly, exactly. And then on the other side, you take off that part of the box. That is going to be your map of where you are going around trying to save the different people and defeat the beast that you're fighting. How many game companies do you think wish they'd have thought of that? Oh, my gosh. This is such a unique thing. As you play the game, you have one board on the side of you that tracks the horror. And the horror will basically say how many dice you get to roll each turn whenever you're trying to complete actions. This will also be a place where you keep track of how many people you have saved and also what you're going to have, like what you're holding on to. Are you holding on to a knife and a pitchfork? What do you have in your backpack? All Mm -hmm. the different items that the final girl will have. You also have a number of cards on the side that will have little hourglasses on it. So your thing where you keep track of how many dice you get to roll, there are hourglass numbers along the side there. You start at six. Say you want to walk. Well, Mm -hmm. you have the card in your hand. It says walk. Take a look. See how many dice you have. You roll those two dice. If you rolled a star, you succeeded. If you rolled a blank, you failed. If you rolled two cards, you can discard two cards from your hand in order to make it a success. Mm. You will then take a look at your walk card and see, okay, I rolled this many stars. I get to move one space on the board, but I have to lose one time. Time actually works two different ways. The cost of how many actions you get during the turn Plus, also, the cards that you have with walk, there will be things with furious blow, focus, take a short rest or long rest. Whenever you buy those to put them in your hand, there will be a little hourglass in that, and that will show how much time you need to take to buy that. So, you're looking at, you have six time, how much movement do I want to get, but then also, how many cards do I want to get to put into my hand? in order to defeat the bad guy at the end of the game. Would you say time is kind of your primary resource that you have to manage? Yes, yes. Okay. 
So it's, it's kind of tough there whenever you're playing that, like you have everything there. You could just beat this guy up with a bunch of little shots, but then there's that furious blow over there that you could hit him with like four shots at one time if you roll well, but it's going to take four of your time. It's going to take more time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough one to play. So as you play those cards, those cards will go off to the side. They will not be available for you for the next turn. Mm-hmm. So you take a look at how much time you have. You buy the cards you want, put them in your hand, and then that's what you're going to be playing so with. There's so there's a bit of like, I need to think about what I'm going to be doing next turn when I make my decisions this turn because I won't have access to these cards again. Do you get them back the turn after that? Yes, you can okay. get a chance to get those back. But so you're not going to do the same cards two turns cycle. Got it. So it's kind of like you have the cards that are in the marketplace all mm-hmm. the time. But you have to time how much time you want to use on those to cycle them in and out of your hand. What are some of the objectives from one, we'll say, VHS tape to another in the final girl world? Like, I I assume that we're not just trying to kill the bad guy in all of them. No, 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 no. What you want to do is you want to be able to – well, the main thing really is you want to kill the bad guy. Well, I stand corrected then. you need to go through and save a number of the meeples. And I love these things because the Happy Trails horror is the one I've played the most. So you're at Camp Happy Trails. You flip over the setup card, and there mm-hmm. are six different setup cards for each one of these. So you flip over the setup. And you well, only use this, one? Yes. So if I'm playing one. Camp Happy Trails, it's not unique because I have the Camp Happy Trails board and whatever villain. It's also unique because there are six different ways to set up the game. Right, right. Wow. It could be the night for the bonfire. So everyone's down in one section of the place here around the bonfire. But in typical 80s horror movie, there's a couple people up on makeout point. Mm -hmm. There's a couple people hanging out down at the boat dock as well. So you have all these things going on. So what you're doing is you're running around through this map while the killer is trying to search out and find the people to kill them. But you're searching the different cabins for a knife. It may be an ability to pick up some gas that you can set them on fire or you get a machete. This game is deceptively simple, but deceptively brutal. Getting those rolls that you need whenever you roll, they do not come up the way you want them to very often <laughs> at all. I will tell you. There are ways to mitigate the rolls. Well, with but the discarding still, cards to make a success. Yes. Yeah. Now, the other thing that is so great, and I know I saw this on the uh, Kickstarter page for the season two, mm-hmm. is that these things can be interchanged. So you could have, uh, I know whenever they said this, if you bought all 10 games, you would have over 100 different ways to play this. Oh, yeah. So you could have Jason fighting at Creech Manor. Mm-hmm. Or you could have the poltergeist at the carnival or the ones coming up here. They have one that's based on aliens. So you could have Freddy Krueger fighting on a spaceship. But then uh, you also factor in, you said there's five different setup cards for each one. Like I could play that five times and have a unique setup for each time, right? That is correct. Plus, there's also two final girls in each one of the games that have a little bit different setup and powers. So that also changes things up as well. Now, we're talking the core box here was it packs. I want to say you spent 20 bucks, 20 bucks on the core box, Uh, 25, I think, for the core box, 20 bucks for each one of the the tapes 
Yeah, mm-hmm. good audio there. I'm putting up my uh, finger quotes. <laughs> the VHS tapes, yeah. But then they also had a thing where you could upgrade to the killers in the final girls to miniatures. And yeah, of course I, I had that. to do that. <laughs> they have play match you could get for that. And that's not necessary, but it's a nice add on to get as well. So it's not that expensive to get into it. I mean, $45 for one game you can play with the core set, five different ways to set up. Well, 10 different ways to play it, really, if you think two final girls plus five different ways to set it up. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of replayability into that. You add the other tapes onto it. Wow. Like you just said, two more. And you're up to $85, but you've got three different locations, three different killers, five different setups for each, two different final girls for each of them. I mean, this is like a solo player's dream. It most certainly is. In it really goes back to the fun aspect of this, just their setup for that board, for their box. I mean, that is just freaking brilliant to take and put the board and the killer display on both sides of that and just open it up. Let me tell you what, there was something amazing whenever I was pulling out the lid on one of them to get some of the pieces out. Well, I pulled the whole insert out. There was an envelope underneath there. For one of the final girls. They hidden enveloped you. There's a special weapon just for that person. And it was like, my mind was blown. You even posted a video on our page. Yes. You're like, guys, guys, you had the camera was shaking like the Blair Witch Project. And there's Scott like coming in and out. He's like, my mind has just been blown. A thing happened. (laughs) I know. I was (laughs) so excited. (laughs) And it's, it's those little touches there that make this game so much fun. They're coming out with season two, and this one here is going to be coming out with different ones with a werewolf, like uh, Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. There's going to be a thing based on The Thing, mm-hmm. uh, based on Alien. I love The Thing. I forget what a couple of the other ones are, but you stop and think about this. You have The Thing. You're fighting in like Antarctica or something like that in this snow-surrounded place. Let's throw a poltergeist in that instead of The Thing. Yeah. How is that going to change everything? Or let's throw Jason in there to fight and, and do things. There's so much you can do with changing around with this and making this game like the dream movie that you never got a chance to see. And it's just so much fun. They really, really hit something on us because I think a lot of times gamers love horror movies. I love horror movies. I It's like nerd culture adjacent, sure. You know, yeah, growing up, I mean, my friend and I, we would sit there and we watch these horrible horror movies. And all we would do is like eat pizza and look at them like, oh, that's an interesting way to kill somebody. <laughs> now, granted, if you didn't know us, you would be thinking we should call the authorities on these two lunatics. You just look at it and you understand what goes into the horror games and the horror movies. It's fun. It's silly. It's meant to be that way. That's the beauty of this game. It kind of lets you relive those times whenever you'd watch these movies as a kid. I, I really cannot say more about this. Now, one thing people have said, and I touched on it a little bit, is that it is so based on luck. It's based upon what dice you were rolling, and it really does open it up. But then again, I just played the other night. I played against Dr. Fright. Let me tell you, the part that they put into this, uh, I loved it. I read someplace where they made this one up, uh, the Dr. Fright scenario. They made it up because they needed five games. Mm. And they're like, okay, let's make this up. And they made it up in like a half an hour. The luck, yeah. 
you roll the dice, you don't have that much luck. You can mitigate it a little bit. But then on the other hand, the luck I had to have the shotgun and have the critical blow and everything lined up, that was like a beautiful moment that I'm like, everything lined up for me perfectly. And I killed him and I actually won the game. So it's one of those things where, yeah, if you're unlucky, these things are going to happen. But on the other hand, you can be just as lucky as you are unlucky. You can't really base your criticisms on that part of the game. The point being, though, is that, yes, you can win and you can lose the game based strictly on a die roll, five dice, and you either got there or you didn't. You exactly. got to be okay with that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those things. You need to accept that, yes, you're not going to be able to be perfect all the time. You aren't going to be able to find a way to break this game. Well, I'll tell you what, I let you borrow Micro Macro before Thanksgiving, and you still have it, so I feel like you should let me borrow Final Girl for now till, I don't know, we'll say uh, Midsummer, Midsummer's Eve. <laughs> I will be happy to bring it to you. Hey! Scott, we're going long, man. Going I know, I know. This episode. Let's talk about how did you level up since we last spoke. I hate to do this. I really, really do. But my leveling up is a long-term level up. This is uh, a level up that was 37 years in the making. I just had a close friend pass away, and I didn't know about it for about a month, actually. Mm. And I wasn't told about it or anything, and it, it hit me like a load of bricks. My level up is being able to know that I knew this guy for so long and the number of laughs we had, the number of close moments with him and my family and him doing things. He was the guy that cut our family's hair for 37 years. He was just such a great person, such a giving person. And I really say that a lot of who I am is based upon him. And I'm just upset I'd never got a chance to tell him that, knowing about when it happened. But if you have those kind of people in your life, be sure to say things to them. Be sure to be thankful that they have been put in your life to help you become the person you are. So, Bill, you're the best there. So my leveling up is knowing a wonderful, wonderful soul. Well, I can't follow that up. I think we're just going to let things taper. Scott, I'll see you tomorrow, and uh, Adventurers, tune in next week. We're going to have a side quest for Rogue Angels, a game by Emil Larson coming to Kickstarter. Here, straight from the designer, everything he has to say. Keep your eyes open for March 12th. We're going to be at Fabricator's Forge in Coriopolis. Till next time. You have a good one, and everyone else, be sure to level up. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.